slash and cast. Alright folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now in this episode I chat with actor Rick Worthy about the 1970s Chicago theater scene, martial arts, bullies, supernatural, vampires, strange lights in the sky, and more. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to send us those reviews on your podcasting platform of choice, and get yourself a shout out and a discount on future merch. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. How can I help you? Got some questions for you, Skippy. Since you're going nowhere fast. Don't be so sure. Yeah. Locked down pretty tight. With all that dead blood rushing through your veins. Not sure you got enough juice to fire up that psychic bat signal of yours, do you? True. Not near enough juice for that, Dean. I didn't realize we were on a first-name basis. Of course we are. After all, you were my child for a time. Dean, tell me, did you enjoy it? I'm asking the questions here, Fright Night. When your kind first huddled around the fire, I was the thing in the dark. Now you think you can hurt me? I have all night, boys. You do not. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Take us back in time to when you were a youngster. Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? I would definitely say I was a book reader. I loved comic books. I was a kid growing up in Detroit, Michigan in the early 1970s, showing my age. My mom and dad noticed I was a nerd when the original Batman TV series with Adam West and uh, Burt Ward. Every time it came on, you know, I would, I, and my brother as well, but I think especially me, like, you know, I had to watch it. All the animated Spider-Man stuff and Iron Man stuff from back in the, the 60s, you know, they, which you can still watch on YouTube. It's great. Good <laughs> and, stuff. Uh, yeah, it's good stuff, mm-hmm. man. It's really cool stuff, you know, and uh, I love it, you know, and I think it's still... I think it still works today, to be honest with you. I was obsessed with superheroes. I ended up falling in love with Spider-Man. I wanted to be Spider-Man. So, <laughs> and, and I remember I would crawl down the street like Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely convinced that I had all of his spider powers, you know. I related, you know, what kid didn't relate to Peter Parker? You know, he kind of didn't fit in. He wore glasses. I wore glasses, especially really thick ones. At that, I'm actually legally blind in my right eye. My myopia is so strong that I, I really can't see anything out of his eye. Um, but the, the technology is so is, is advanced now so that I can wear glasses. They're still thick, but they're just less 
the lens is less thick. You know, kids tease me and I was on the receiving end of all the teasing. And plus I was a smart kid and I got A's and, you know, I loved comic books. So I was the class of, I was the typical nerd. <laughs> right, right. And, and I'm so glad that I was. <laughs> it's cool to be a nerd. <laughs> that wasn't always you the know, case. You know, I always tell young people, it's all right. Like, be smart and be clever and read comic books and it's all good when you think well since we're on those years what what about films and television what what uh, which one of those comes to mind probably my first thing is star trek the original series even as a as a youngster i thought it was great a very diverse cast somewhere in outer space doing really cool shit <laughs> <laughs> and, you know boldly going where you know no man or woman has gone before you know and i i really wanted to be on that that ship with them you know just falling in love with really science fiction and fantasy i, I think it really kind of altered my life and kind of really led up to I, of course, I didn't know I was going to be an actor when I was so young. As I got older and started, you know, really diving into into theater and film and TV, like the stuff that was more fantasy, like Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica. You know, I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit. I, I was like, man, I was kind of meant for that kind of stuff because mm. that's, that's stuff that I that I love the most. Is it fair to say that your interest in martial arts early on sort of arose from the bullying? Yeah, you know what's funny? I, I was actually thinking about that today. I, like, I really love martial arts training and I, I love the practice of martial arts and I respect you know those who vary whatever form it is you know I studied Taekwondo and I'm now 55 years old to this day it's made a huge impact on I think how I approach people in life so to speak and I'm not a perfect person that's for sure I think the one thing I've learned is what was, was taught to me was don't fight but if you have to fight fight to win I try to carry that with me in business and work and everything like it's not always necessary to go to combat but if you have to, you know, it's always better to try to talk things out. I think so many hotheads are nowadays, people are just so ready to, even when I was a young a, a guy in high school, like so people are just, they, their egos are so fragile. They're just ready to go to blows like right away. And, you know, the thing is, and most people that do study whatever it is, whether you're a boxer or like you said, Taekwondo, the people that know how to defend themselves usually don't have the hotheads. You know, they're the, that's the last thing they absolutely want to do. It's usually the untrained right. people who want to, because they don't know right. the, the consequences of violence, I guess you could say, you know. Exactly. Totally, totally agree. You know, and you know, I've talked with people who it's like, well, yeah, I, I, I broke the guy's nose. I, but man, I just instantly regretted it the second it happened. You know, it's like, but you know, they were in a situation where they had to defend themselves, you know? Right. So, so there's that compassion you have for other people. But my hero as a kid was Bruce Lee. <laughs> 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 you know, even to this day, man, I will, I'll sit down and check out a Bruce Lee movie, you know, Into the Dragon or, you know, whatever it may be. And, and I'm, I'm just, it's like I'm watching it for the first time. He, he took the game to a different level. And I think he'll always be, in my mind, like one of the greatest, if not the greatest. So. You can't really touch early Bruce Lee and Jackie. Can't touch him, man. <laughs> for sure, for sure. You know, just on a different level of physicality and creativity. Yeah, yeah. I like listening to Jackie talk about Bruce Lee because you know he has a great respect for Bruce Lee. Obviously, but they're just different. You could mm -hmm. never beat Bruce up, but everybody beats me up in my movies. That's what Jackie was saying. <laughs> <laughs> just watched the Karate Kid. It was the remake with yeah. Um, with Jaden Smith. I loved him in that role. Yeah, I was totally, totally. He was, I was like, I wouldn't mess with him. <laughs> <laughs> so at what age did you start uh, training? Was it real early on? I started training when I was about, man, I would say I was about eight or nine years old. I had an amazing instructor. 
he was pretty hard on me, but but I think it's because he just believed in me, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he just he just wanted me to push beyond my own in Detroit, Michigan. And I just remember we moved from one neighborhood to another neighborhood. My mom and dad said, "You're going to have to find another way how to how to get to." as we call the karate school. We live on the other side of the city now. And I said, I'll get on the bus. You know, so they said, all right. You know, so they let me on the bus, got a bus pass. And I, on Saturday mornings, I, you know, go to karate. <laughs> uh, oddly enough, it's like, I, I look back and I think back on that those days now. And it's like, I don't know, I guess the world's kind of just so crazy right now. Like, I don't know if I would, if, if I would let my kids do something like that at age 10, 11 years old. You know, I have to be really careful now. Things have kind of gotten, well, it's another discussion, but <laughs> the world seems less safe today. It does. It does. When we're talking about uh, acting, Rick, is there a eureka moment that you can point to early on, maybe a, a play or a performance or something you saw early on to where you said, you know, that's it for me? Absolutely. So glad you asked that question because for me, the eureka moment was there's a movie called, there are two movies. One is called Ragtime, Ragtime from 1981, I believe, and the other was called The Soldier's Story, which I believe came out in 1982 possibly early 83, but I keep thinking 82. And it stars an actor named Howard E. Rowland Jr., who's now deceased. I saw him in these two movies, man. And I was just 14. But I said, when I saw him, I was like, I want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. A Soldier's Story is based on a a play by Charles Fuller called A Soldier's Play. And it takes place in 19, like World War II, 1944. And it's like Mm -hmm. an all black regiment. But they're, they're stationed sort of next to an all white regiment. So there's a racial conflict that happens. And there's a murder that takes place of a black captain uh, sergeant sorry and everyone thinks it's maybe you know at that time you know you would think well maybe it was a, a racial incident but actually it turns out that it, that it was it wasn't <laughs> it was actually one of the own soldiers in the black company who did it so the question is who who did it so it becomes this intense murder investigation and the actor uh, howard rollins plays captain davenport i mean he's like general Patton. he's like got swagger and he's got <laughs> these cool sunglasses and he's like you know he, but he's a lawyer you know, he's an attorney and they bring him in as an outside investigator to solve the crime. Great performance. When he when I saw that movie, I said, I want to do that. It took a few years to really kind of, you know, I was just 14, but I started slowly getting in in high school theater and stuff like that. And as I got older, I was kind of getting more ready for college level theater. And, and you know, when I when I got to college, I, I just, it took about a year or so of convincing my mom and dad. <laughs> but <laughs> they're like, no way you're going to be an actor. <laughs> hey, it worked um, out. But, obviously, you know, I, it worked. It worked out. You know, kind of the short. The short story, the short answer to your question, I guess. <laughs> what was your first time on stage? You know, your very first time. Did it go off without a hitch? Were you nervous when you finally decided to take the jump? Man, I remember, let me see. I remember being, I was in high school. I did The Wiz, which is like in, like an all-black version of The Wizard of Oz. And I had all I had like four roles because it was like kind of sort of small roles that they wanted me to do. And I was a dancer at that time, actually. I was like a, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm like six foot three. But man, I was a break dancer back in the 80s. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, I can't do any of that stuff. I can do it maybe a little bit. But at that time, you know, your your body doesn't understand gravity, you know, when you're 15, 16 years old. So I was able to do all kinds of stuff. My brother and I, we were on it. We competed on a show. I was so young, man. I was like, I was like 18. My brother, it was like 1984, 1985. My brother called me and said, the TV show Dance Fever, which is like a modern day, which would be the version of like, um, so you think you can dance or, you know, one of these sort of early, early dance contest shows, reality shows. He said, Dance Fever is coming to Detroit. We should audition, audition for it. And so I said, yeah, let's do it. So we auditioned for it and we got on the show 
And they flew us to Hollywood and, you know, put us up and, and we competed on Dance Fever. This is 1980. It aired in 1985. And I was so skinny and so wiry. And I was a pop locker break dancer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was, it was, I tell people, and I had like, it's so funny because like I'm, I'm, bald, I'm shaved, you know, I'm bald now, especially at the top. But at the time I had like a kind of like high top fade, like hidden play, you know, like an early, early Will Smith. Oh yeah, yeah, Super yeah. high top, you know, and I, I just, I physically, yeah, I like physically looked very different at that time. We competed, we didn't win, but I think if you look at the video, I very humbly say we, we definitely should have won. It kind of put this thing in me, like at some point I got to return to LA at some point. But before that, I need to get back home and I really need to get on stage. I studied theater and film in, at U University of Michigan, much to my parents' uh, chagrin. Uh, graduated in 1990 and got on stage. I did in college and then I got went moved to Chicago and really, really dove in. I was so excited to be in Chicago. Actually, this is where I am right now. I don't know if you can. If you can oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm staying in downtown Chicago. It was like the perfect move for me because I always thought I would start in New York, but my brother and his wife had already moved to Chicago and they said, you know, there's a lot of actors in Chicago. You should really think about coming here. I did. And I found a little apartment on the north side for 335 bucks a month. And, I, you know, I was poor, but I was happy. <laughs> I started getting on stage here in Chicago and I was just committed to it, you know, and um, got a good agent here and he got me in my first play. And I was so excited. I played a Catholic priest. I would never forget that. I wasn't nervous at all. I was like excited, you know, mm -hmm. and um, just kind of just dove in, you know. So I think all those years of kind of dancing in front of people have kind mm -hmm. of prepared me, I guess, if you will, for being in front of people. I spoke with Stephen Williams recently. He said the same thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. He said the same thing that you just did. Moving to Chicago and doing theater was the best move that he made early on. Yeah, man. It, I love him so damn much. I, yeah, he's such a good, like I always say, if I get to, if I live to be his age, I want to be just like him. <laughs> <laughs> He's got so much energy and he appreciates what he has, you know. He's authentic. And, um, you know, he's a very you know, authentic person. He's authentic. He's so authentic, man. And, you know, shoots straight from the hip. <laughs> and I've done a couple of conventions with him and he's like I'm like, I I can't do any other conventions unless Steven is there. <laughs> yeah, the whole time the whole time we were recording he was drinking corona and uh smoking cigarillos. <laughs> he is a trip. He's so damn fun. I feel bad because I, I think he called me. I think he called me, man, I think he, he called me about three years ago and he said, hey, give me a call. You know, and I, I just haven't called him, you know, and I, 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 need, to, I need to call him. Yeah, just call him. I'm sure he'll pick yeah. up. I wanted to ask you, with your background in dance and theater, did you, did you have any crossover to musicals at all? <laughs> man, I did. I have done mostly, I would say no, but I have done mostly the straight dramas, which is what I prefer. But I am not a singer. I, I if we if we do karaoke, everybody wants me to get up and sing first because they think I can sing, but I really cannot sing. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I just can't. I, it's a different muscle. And I did The Wiz, which is a musical, but. I can't really say that I, I was, it was more of a dancing role, but I have not done Guys and Dolls or Oklahoma, or, <laughs> you know, and no, nothing like that. No. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> That's like a different level. Like I can only, like when I go see stuff like that, on, you know, musicals on, on Broadway or in Chicago, it's like, I, that's a different thing that I cannot do. <laughs> <laughs> so what were your personal favorite roles to play when you were very active on stage? Wow. I would say I did a play called The Meeting by Jeff Stetson. I did it first in, in, in Atlanta, Georgia at the National Black Theater Festival. And then we moved it to Detroit on the professional stage, downtown Detroit, at a theater called 1515 Broadway. And this is 
I was so young, man. I was like 21 years old, almost 35 years ago. The meeting is about what if Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X had met privately? What would they, what would they have said to each other? Maybe they met. I don't know if anyone really knows if they actually privately met and sort of talked it out. You know, like, this is my philosophy. This is about civil rights. This is what we need to do. Versus, you know, this is my philosophy. This is what we need to do. But the play is so brilliant because as these two icons of the civil rights movement are arguing, their hands are getting closer to each other and closer to each other. And then they embrace in this sort of like, arm wrestle lock and then they start arm wrestling <laughs> on stage and it's so cool to see it we did the play and i played malcolm x's bodyguard uh, rashad who is really sort of a fictional character but you know could be any number one of bodyguards that, that malcolm x actually had my acting teacher played malcolm x fabulous actor brilliant actor who passed away also my acting teacher passed away this year sadly the actor who played king passed away a few years ago but this wonderful actor from ann arbor michigan named steve dixon played king Dr. Martin Luther King and my acting teacher, Dr. Charles Jackson, played Malcolm X. And I just, I was just a young kid watching these two veterans work. And bro, I'm just backstage, you know, I'm only on stage for nine or 10 minutes. They were on stage for two hours. Right. So I'm just watching them work, man. And I'm learning, just like absorbing it, how to use the voice, how to be on stage and move. It was an amazing education for me. I'll never, ever, ever forget them, you know. That role was pivotal for me. And then when I moved to Chicago, and I did a few other roles in college, when I moved to Chicago, I just dove in, man. Uh, I didn't really take more lessons or anything like that. I was just like, this, I'm ready. Like, uh, and, and I'm just going to learn, you know, and, and keep learning. One job led to the next. And next thing I know, I'm at the Goodman Theater on stage, like the main stage. Yeah, like it, it, it was like one of those things where I was like, it's time, you know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I don't have any money, but it's time to be there and it's time to do it. <laughs> How does the jump from stage to screen ultimately happen for you? Well, you know, the great thing about Chicago is that there's like, when I was in Chicago, when I was here in the 90s, like we had, there was a lot of cool stuff filming in Chicago. For example, The Untouchable about mm -hmm. Elliot Ness. That was filming here for, I think, two seasons. I think it went for three seasons and then they canceled the, the series, but they decided to shoot here in Chicago. And I had a, a really, really great agent at that time. And, and, and um, she said, I'm going to get you on that show. So she finally got me, she got me some great auditions. And then I finally landed one and I played this, this, this gangster, you know, well dress like Tiki Blinders kind of yeah. style. 20 Chicago, 1920s, 30s Chicago and Southside gangsters. You know, they were badasses and they look cool. <laughs> and, uh, Slick. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. Cuba Gooding Jr. played the other, the opposite of me. Wow. But I had I had to be the guy to come in and take him out, you know. So it was so cool, you know. And the director was like, "This is gonna be great. We're gonna you're gonna be in an alley, and there's gonna be smoke, and then boom, then you appear." And I was like, "Oh, this is awesome!" And to be on location, I think in Chicago, you know, it, you know, it made that kind of show just I think it just looked visually just incredible. That was the cool thing about being here was that we had stuff filming here. You had the Fugitive, you know, Tommy Lee Jones. You had the movie, and then they had the TV series, and they shot some of it here. I didn't work on that, but it was like one. Of those shows that took advantage of mm -hmm. in the Windy City. And then you had like any number of other different TV shows that were that were shooting here. One called Missing Person that was shooting here. I did that one. Then you had like McDonald's is headquartered here. So a lot of actors here booked a lot of commercials or mm. voiceover for me. It was like a lot of voiceover for McDonald's. That was like a payday. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, look, you can pay me in, in burgers and fries or, you know, but I would prefer money. <laughs> 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 you know, 
but I did a, I did a McDonald's commercial. It, it was really great, you know, and the experience was great. And then the producers, you wanted to do some voiceover, like narrate some products for us, you know, like product voiceover. And I, I said, I'd love to. So that was my first time doing that. And I discovered that was not only did it pay well, but it was it was nice to, to not have to put on makeup or anything and just go and just record. So does your approach as an actor, does it differ depending on whether you're on stage or if you're working on the screen? It's the exact same approach. I get the script, like if you send me the script, I will read it and then analyze it the exact same way. If it's a movie, if it's a pilot for a series or if it's a play, I approach it a very, very sort of linear, direct way. And I, I do the same thing for for anything. And I discovered that that's the process that works best for me. But, you know, as I'm sure you know, like you shoot a TV show or a movie, everything's just sort of shot out of order. So you may shoot the ending first where you have to be in tears <laughs> or you, you know, and then, and then you shoot the beginning the following day. <laughs> You know, where, you know, nothing, nothing horrible happened yet or whatever. That was kind of the weird thing at first getting used to doing a TV or film. In a right. play, everything is linear, like like straight through. You know, you, you start, beginning, middle, and end. Typically, when you're on stage, you build up to it. I just did a series for Hulu called Washington Black, based on a book called Washington Black, about a young Caribbean slave child from Barbados in the 18, early 1820s. He escapes slavery on a flying boat. It's based on a book called Washington Black. We shot it in Canada, in uh, Nova Scotia, in June, May and June of this year. Best job I've ever had in my life. I don't know what's next after the magicians, you know, or Man in the High Castle, but sure enough, something great comes and it's called Washington Black. And Sterling K. Brown stars in it and produces it. Tom Ellis, Lucifer, he's starring in it as well. Billy Boyd. Wow. Um, yeah, it's like uh, Charles Dan. Um, and, um, Keep it coming. Ca- <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, I was reading. I was reading the. I was reading the coffee. And I was like, "Whoa!" I was like, "I love all these guys." Yeah. You know, they weren't able to send me the full script yet until I signed on to do the show. So, and my agent said, "This they're just super like super locked on sending out anything." But you're in it. Sadly, I didn't get a chance to work. Well, I actually worked with Billy and Sterling, but I didn't get a chance to work with Tom or Charles Dan. You know, and I love both of those guys. You know, I think they're great. We had some really really nice stuff. Anyway, not too many spoilers, but the experience was such that I just did what I always did, man. I read it, you know, outlined what I want to do as the character and, and, and this went to work. It was really ass kicking in the, in the, in the, in a lot of ways in that everyone kept catching the virus. Miraculously, I never caught it. It would be coming out in May. You mentioned makeup. So I just wanted to ask you, was Star Trek the most makeup extensive job you've ever had? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you're in the, like, you play a Klingon, you are in the makeup chair at 5 a.m., period. There's no getting around it, you know, so, which means you are up at 3.30 or 4, take the dog out for, for the morning wee-wee walk, and then you head on head on into work, you know? <laughs> How long were you sitting there? Dude, for me, uh, the most intensive, I, I was a Klingon in, in Deep Space Nine, and that, gosh, 5 a.m. in the makeup chair, and then about two and a half, three hours. Brutal. And then about 90 minutes to two hours to take it off at the end of the day. So, and you know, somebody once said this, they said, there are those who can do that. There are those who cannot do that because you're, you're, you're having, and I love Michael Westmore. He's a makeup chief for Star Trek for many years. And his family of, I think his grandfather or his father, they were like, you know, makeup artists, like on movies like Casablanca, you know, stuff wow. like that. Michael was like, he was, just, he's just he's like, he's like your next door neighbor or the mailman or somebody. He's so 
grounded and so down to earth but the dude's got like hollywood pedigree you know big yeah time, you know yeah yeah and, but he's so but he loves what he does i think his daughter does some kind of reality show about some makeup and makeup art and special effects is, uh in hollywood so michael did me he was the first one who did my who did me as a cleanup it was 5 a.m i can just tell you he put cold he put cold like glue right under your eyelid like this wake and, up call <laughs> dude either either you can do it or you can't <laughs> <laughs> hey, not everybody's built to be, uh, be a klingon <laughs> yeah, man. But, you know, like, I, I said, this, this is great. I love it. You know, let's do it. You know? <laughs> like you said, like, Star Trek's just one of them. You've been, like, on multiple major TV franchises. I wanted to ask, you know, as a working actor, even if it's just one episode on these major, even if it's Battlestar, Supernatural, whatever it is, you just make sure you take something from that set, sort of like a sponge, you soak it up and carry it with you going forward? I think so, yeah. I think you learn. You appreciate what you have, and then... I remember Tyne Daly, the actress, actress Tyne Daly, who was Tim Daly's older sister. She once said, you learn every job, you know, mm. you, you show up, but then you got to learn what, what it is that you're doing as that character and how to present that character. And I think that's so true, man. You know, like you can get the job and you can nail the audition. But then when you get there, you, you're really kind of still figuring out, OK, this is this is what this person sounds like and moves like this, how this person smokes or carries a coffee cup or whatever it is. It's a little bit of kind of on on the job learning. And then after a couple of like a good day or two or like, OK, now I get I get with this person. I have a good understanding of what this person is about. I was terrified when I did Supernatural because it was such a challenging role. Essentially, you know, I was playing, you know, Dracula. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the OG, yeah, right? Yeah. The OG. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> the first one, you mm -hmm. know, so you're, 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 you're thinking about all the people who've done it before you. And then you have to forget about that and try to step into it on your own. I didn't know. I did a lot of homework, man, before I said the first word on that on Supernatural. And I felt good with the first couple of takes, but I still wasn't sure if it was what I wanted it to be, which is I wanted it to be terrifying and also just elegant and super smart. You never really know what he's thinking. And then I remember Guy B, the director, um, we after about three or four takes, he, he peeks out from every actor wants. You want the director to kind of look at you like this and go and do this. <laughs> so, you know, give you a thumbs up. And he finally peeked out from the, his video screen, we call it Video Village. He kind of did like this and he goes like this, he takes off the headphones like this and he goes, I was like, oh God, because I was like, I can't, I can't mess this up, man. You know, it, 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 stakes are too high. You didn't because my first experience with your work was Supernatural. So oh, was it, all yeah, it really was. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, like you just described uh, it perfectly. You know, being a being that vampire, the OG vampire, yeah. you have to be primal and regal at the same time. That's it. Mm -hmm. You just said it perfectly. You know, he's primal and regal at the same time. You know, and um, I'm not hating on I'm not hating on Twilight. I you know I, I'm happy when any actor and writer gets a job, any right. director gets a job, especially a big, huge, multi million dollar franchise like that. You know, it would, it would be great for anybody's life. I didn't like the way they did the vampires. It's just the, not the movies. vampire for me. That's what I, you know. No, it's just not. That's it. I don't know. Have you ever seen the Monster Squad? I don't think I have. Is that a series or a movie? It's a movie from the late 80s. It's basically, you know, a bunch of kids get together and basically stop the classic universal monsters, which is like Dracula, Wolfman, Frankenstein, what have you. That sounds I've, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. I, have, I haven't seen it, though. That sounds, like, that sounds like something I should probably watch. I think you'd enjoy it. I say that because Duncan Rager plays Dracula in that movie. Yeah. And even though it's a kid movie, he does not play a kid version of Dracula. It's actually like a terrifying rendition of Dracula. Wow. <laughs> the think, Monster Squad. Yeah, I think you'd enjoy his rendition of Dracula. I'll check it out. If it's, if it's on Netflix or Hulu, I'll find it. Now. Yeah, you'll find it somewhere <laughs> there.
sort of sticking on Supernatural for a second, would you say that was a typical audition or was it like a right place, right time thing? You know what's so funny is that I've auditioned for Supernatural. I had auditioned for Supernatural probably four times, maybe five times. And Kripke, Eric Kripke, already, he knew me from the audition. I just wasn't, I wasn't landing any of them. I had actually read for the role of Crowley. I was so bummed out when I didn't get the job. My agent said, they're going to give it to this British actor named Mark Shepard. And I said, oh, I know Mark Shepard. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we did Battlestar. We hadn't, didn't have any scenes together, but, but I knew him and I had seen him on set. So I was, I was like, okay, all right. You know, and I was like, I'm, I'm done with Supernatural, man. They're not going to hire me. But then this last thing, this audition, audition came in and it was one of those classic cases where I'm like, I really need this job. And I really, not just financially, but I need this, my career to, to reboot it again. Got, I got the job. It was a very lengthy nine-page audition, which is a pretty long audition. Like they, he, essentially, I had to read everything. Typically, it's for a good four or five pages of of a, of a good scene, maybe two. But they had me read all three or four scenes. Yeah, and I had it all memorized, you know, like I usually do. Like I walked in, like I'll have it memorized or very close, like maybe 97% memorized, but I'll have the pages in my hand. And every now and then I'll just, like I'll read and then I'll just kind of glance down like that. It's one of those things that really helps a lot because it gives the, it gives me an idea that like this person has done their homework and they're ready. And then we can also maybe direct that person. Instead of seeing a finished product, this person's ready to be directed and to be given uh, direction. So I came in with that presenting that I had a really solid I think idea of how I wanted how I wanted this guy to be which was not only terrifying but super super ancient like old yeah. <laughs> you know like, yeah. like he's been around like you said final right yeah. he's been around friend. he's long he's older than 200 years old you know he's been around and I wanted I wanted that to come across so I made him sort of just sort of very still like this like he very very move, like moves doesn't move a lot unless he has to very deliberate and very deliberate, exactly. Mm -hmm. In the episode we did, There Will Be Blood, that's when Sam and Dean come to get some of the Alpha Vamp's blood yeah. so they can destroy Dick Roman. And in the script, the Alpha Vamp gets up, walks across the room, and he slaps Dean. I said, no, I don't think he would do that. He would just stay still in his chair. <laughs> And then maybe one of his one of his cronies maybe would do something, but he he's not going to get up and go. Slap. It's you know, beneath that, him. That would, totally, it would take away really his, sort of his like a lot of his strength. So the director said, okay, let's 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 shoot one that way. You know, so that's what we did, and that's what that's what made the cut. So I, I love Eric Kripke. I hope he hires me to do the boys or something because I would love to work with him again. But if he doesn't, that's okay. He he really I think gave me a chance to kind of find, make the character really my, like the way I wanted him. Yeah. Well, you were on Supernatural for several episodes, you know, seeing behind the scenes and how the guys work. What do you think that magic sauce is that helped in last 15 seasons where most shows just kind of fizzle out? Man, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> 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 and I'll, I'll tell you why, Justin. I think I have the right to say this now. I've worked with a lot of people at, after, let's see, I'm 55. I started at age 25 in LA. Well, it's about, let's say 30 years. Okay. So I've worked with a lot of people. Movie stars, Sandra Bullock, Bill Pullman, people like all the way, all the different levels. TV stars. I started with people who were guest stars on my own show and then they became stars on their own series, you know. So I've seen it sort of, I've seen it all, you know. I've seen the, the roller coaster ride of it all, not only on my own career and life, but other people as well. I'm not one to talk about people. That's, I think this it sort of lowers a person's character. But I have worked with people fairly recently. I've seen them go from season one where everyone's happy to have a great job and they're on location and, you know, maybe buying a house in a couple of years 
to by the time season three starts, they won't even talk to you anymore because they 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 in their in their minds they it's gotten to them. Yeah. And I remember I said, is that the same? Is that the same actress or same actor that that's the same person that I worked with? But they completely changed. That's unfortunate. And, and I, it's so unfortunate, man. And then you're looking at them and you're like, wow. At some point, it's almost like you want to say, look, you guys, take it from me, your big brother, Rick. It comes and goes. This series will be over one day. Don't treat people like that. And people remember, man. There's a, I mean, Hollywood, as they say, they, they always say Hollywood's a small town. People remember. They remember what it was like to work with this person or they, they hear what it's like to work with that person or this person. Word spreads quick. Sadly, I saw some, some young people change for the worse. And as they made more money and more money and got more Instagram followers or whatever it may be, I just hope that they are wise enough now and have matured enough now to realize, hey, the party is going to end at some point, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and just enjoy it and do the best work you can. Treat people decently. We don't have to be beer buddies, but say good morning to me if you see me in the morning, you know. So would you say like supernatural regarding what you just said, would you say the supernatural said they were welcoming and people? Oh, dude, they are the epitome. As someone told me when I got to supernatural, I think it was the gosh, who was it? It was it was one of the key producers on the show. It wasn't Eric, but it, uh, it was it was one of the other producers. They said, you know what makes this show work, Rick? Jared and Jensen, starting with them, they have kept their feet on the ground since day one. They they appreciate what they have and they haven't forgotten them. And, and they're happy to come to work. And they're happy to have people come onto their show and they want all the guest actors like myself and Osric and, and any number of uh, Jim Beaver, any number of people. They want us to have a good experience. It makes their product better overall if everyone's performing Absolutely. great, you know? Absolutely, man. It, it makes a huge difference, man. And that tone trickles down like pretty, like pretty fast. You remember David Caruso from the TV show NYPD Blue? Yep. Brilliant actor. I love David Caruso. When I saw it, he was the, he was the the actor. Howard Rollins was the actor who made me want to become an actor. But it was David Caruso when I saw NYPD Blue as a young twenty five year old actor in Chicago thirty years ago. I said I got to get to L A. because I got to get on that show and I want to work <laughs> with that guy, that fiery redhead Irish guy. I want to I got to work with him. I thought he what he was doing was like next level. You know, and I said, I, I, I got to be a part of that. So David Cruz was a fabulous actor, brilliant actor. But after one year on that show, everything changed, man. You know, uh, you know, and sadly, they had to fire him. And I said, wow, man. So I don't know if it was him. I don't know if it was his managers. I don't know. I've heard different versions. Jared and Jensen have not become that. They have stayed the same. That show, you could have easily become that. You know what I mean? As big as it was, for as long as it was, it was they had a prime opportunity to become that, I mm-hmm. guess. And they didn't. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I just saw Jared. I just saw Jared. And I went to Rhode Island Comic Con with my charity. I have a charity that I run with my friend created, and we run it together. It's called Buddy's Healing Paws. And it's named after my dog, my Labrador Retriever, who I lost right before the pandemic. I'm sorry to hear uh, that. I got three thank, dogs thank on the you. bed right here, so I know. Thank, thank you, man. <laughs> thank, thank you. Oh, right on, right on. Yes. <laughs> I love dogs, man, and, you know, that was my boy, you know, and um, he was almost 13. He died in Vancouver. As we finished filming The Magicians, uh, he passed away. And long story short, I do conventions now, and whatever monies we raise at the conventions, like 50% goes to the charity. Uh, we help people pay their vet medical bills for their dogs and cats, mm. and especially those, like, life-saving procedures and, you know, things that are, like, critical. You know, when people right. just need help, you know, so we that, we try to help as much as we can. And Jared 
And Mitch Pileggi were there. Emily Swallow was there. Samantha Barris was there. God, the other Samantha plays that. Smith. Zine's mom. Sam, Sam mm-hmm. Smith, was there. It was like a whole crowd of us. <laughs> you know, they were there. And a couple other folks were there as well. Mark Shepard was there. It was like a little mini SPN reunion. I said, I said, I, but you know, Jared has a, Three, four hundred people standing in line for him, and he's in a different part of the convention hall. So I said, can, I said, can, I asked if someone could please walk me down to his table so, so I can just say hello. And sure enough, um, I go down there and um, I say hi to Mitch, and, and we hugged Mitch Pileggi, and then um, said hi to Jared. And it felt weird jumping in front of three hundred people, but you know they said you earned okay, it. Come on yeah, 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 yeah. Got street cred. Yeah, man, they, yeah, exactly, dude. Yeah, and uh, it was so great seeing Mitch and Jared. And I was like, man, I freaking miss you guys so much, you know. And haven't seen y'all since before the pandemic. I mean, Mitch is so, Mitch Winch is great, man. X Files, I mean, legend. Oh, legend, <laughs> dude. Like a legend, man. You know, and he's his feet are so ground are on the ground, and he's so he's so kind. You're looking at him, then you're looking at him in the exiles. You're like, this is the same guy. <laughs> he's yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's such a good actor, and you, people know the X Files, obviously. That you yeah. kind of like don't want to go up to him because you're kind of like, oh man, that's Skinner. Exactly, it's Skinner. You don't want to you don't want to mess with Skinner. <laughs> right. yeah. But but he's so you know he's he's so. Have you met him before? I haven't. That's. I'm a, I, I hound him from time to time, so yeah. I'll, I'll do him eventually. But yeah, they they got they you know they have a I think they have cracked the the riddle of well how do you do a t- how do you do a successful TV show? Well, you got to have a terrific concept, a terrific script, fabulous director, producers, then you got to have the right actors who know how to do the characters and do the show, and then keep their egos in check. Mm-hmm. And I, they 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 managed to do it. I haven't always been like the kind of person I want to be. But I would say mostly I have. Because the business is, is bizarre and it can, one day you're eating ramen noodles, the next day you're <laughs> buying dinner for people. Right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's, that's how it is, you know. Right. So, Rick, when you look back over all the roles you've had on your career, whether it be stage or screen, is there one that stands out that was particularly challenging? Maybe something you lost sleep over? For screen, I would say Alpha Vamp. And I did another... I did a really challenging series called The Man in the High Castle, which is still on Amazon Prime. And um, it wasn't one that I lost sleep over, but it was like, I was like, I, I, I got my homework cut out. It was mm. one of those roles. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really proud of it. I actually shot, we actually filmed that. I don't even think the magicians, producers to this day still know. Maybe a couple of them. I actually did that at the same time that I did The Magicians because they were both filming at the same time, but they managed to work it out so I can bounce from, I can go from one to the other when I had free time. I won't recommend that because I know Mark Shepard once told me, he said, man, I'm shooting three shows at the same time. I'm like, wow, I wish I could do that. And then after I did, after I had that experience of working on two at the same time, it it was so exhausting, man, that at the end of the day, I just wanted to just go to sleep. You know, I had had nothing left in me. You know, you make the money and you save the money and, you you know, take your girlfriend out or, you know, buy all the toys for your dog, you know, (laughs) but I was, bro, I was so wiped out. You know, right. and I started started aging me. You know, I had more lines coming in and baggy eyes, and uh, I just wasn't. I physically was it was killing me. Not not killing me, but it was really exhausting me. But you know, you're grateful for it. Something that kept me up at night, like, am, am I going to be able to do this? Like, pull this off? Would, the first thing I think about is Alpha Band, and then probably after that, it might be it might be possibly Dean Fogg from The Magicians because I was doing something kind of unusual and a character I had never really done before. You know, he's a Professor of Magic. Like I, I wanted it to be really, really unique and not just sort of two-dimensional. <laughs> right, right. 
when you're going in for that audition for the magicians, how much do you know about Fog? Dude, I got the job. I, w- I think I was the last one cast. I remember I was in Michigan. My dad was sick, and I was. I, I thank God I was there because I, I was literally the one who drove him to the hospital. He's all right. He's still all right today. He's almost 80. But I remember during that time, my agent said, um, where are you? I said, I'm in Detroit. No, my dad's not well. I'm here. And then um, she said, well, I may have a job for you called The Magicians. Tara Gamble from Supernatural is producing this pilot. They they are, I'm trying to just close the deal without you having to audition for it. I said, great. If you can close the deal, great. Send them my demo tape. So she did that. And then they made me the offer to, to be Dean Fogg. I flew to Louisiana in New Orleans, New Orleans, Louisiana to shoot the pilot. And it was two and a half, three weeks before Christmas that we filmed it. So I was the last one hired as far as I remember. And it sat for a few weeks. I was kind of okay with what I did in the pilot. But then I had a few, because uh, I was, I had no time to read anything, not the books, nothing. You know, like I just had to come up with the character right away, right. Um, which which I don't recommend. Actually. <laughs> Because because you're 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 just you're kind of hoping that you're hitting you're hitting at the right you're hitting the right notes. You know, I had a great director, Mike Cahill is his name, uh, Mike C A H I L L, Mike Cahill, and he had he'd come from the indie indie film world, and he had a couple of great indie films and Sundance and different places, and you know, so they hired him to direct. He was awesome because he kind of let me just play a little bit. You know? Right. And, yeah, he said, "Okay, that was awesome." You know, like you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe pull it back a little bit. <laughs> so, and that's the kind of director I like. And someone who lets me run, but they they know how to pull it back a bit if, if I go too far. Versus someone who's like, "No, don't do that." Every actor's worked with someone who's like, you know, they're the director's afraid, so they won't let you try anything. You know, you don't want to work with right. people like that. So they had a great director, and then they sat for weeks, man. Like it sat for weeks. Like I was like, well, that's another pilot. I eight million dollar pilot. I did. It's never not going to go anywhere. <laughs> it's just chump change yeah. for them. Mm-hmm. For the network. For us, it's everything. It's an eight million dollar pilot. Like give it a chance. For Christ's sakes, you know. So finally, um, I think about four months. Let's see, December, January, February, March, April. It was about April of tw- the following year. So December, January, February, March, about four or four and a half months later, my agent says, calls and she says, they want to give the magicians like a trial season one just to see what happens. I said, great. They're going to bring you back as like a recurring guest. I said, fantastic. So that's how it all started. Thank God, man. They gave it a, a, you know, this trial season because people really tuned into it. So I wanted to ask you, what's the best acting advice you've received in your career and who gave it to you? I would say probably the best acting advice I got was from my my mentor, uh, Dr. Jackson, Dr. Charles Anthony Jackson, may rest in peace. He said, Rick, don't take the character home with you. (laughs) He said, when you're done on stage or on set, leave him there. It was fantastic advice. I was just a young 20-year-old guy, you know, under his tutelage. And I, I was carrying some of the character home with me from time to time. And I remember my mom and dad were like, you're really different today. You're like, you're really moody and you don't want to eat your breakfast. And like, what's wrong with you? I realized I was still sort of thinking as the thinking maybe in the way that a character would in my mind, you know, not being him, but more kind of like sort of osmosis, if you will. Like I was just kind of like, I mean, sort of kind of behaving like him or whatever it may be. And that's not the way to do it. I'm glad you figured that out before you got the alpha vampire role. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't, uh, you know, that would be a pretty interesting life if I didn't (laughs) carry that character home with me, you know. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's funny, though. You know what's really interesting is that you play a certain character that's sort of iconic, like a vampire. 
then for someone like myself, let's say I go out on a date with someone, but I'm not sure maybe what they want on TV or, or if they've seen anything I've done. And then and then in the process, midway through dinner, like they, they say something like, wow, you're really different than I thought you'd be. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, oh, what do you mean? And I already know where it's headed. Uh, I don't know. You just seem like you would be more like, uh, you know, like mysterious and <laughs> like a vampire. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> well, you know, I'm an actor. I have a job to do. That's, 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 and that just shows you that you're good at your job. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I'm like, you know, if you want, I can put on some things and we can, <laughs> we can have lunch. We can have drinks somewhere else. You know? but <laughs> I think one of the weirdest things someone said to me was I was doing a convention. I think it was a supernatural convention. And, you know, if you ever go to, have you ever been to a supernatural, like one of the creation entertainment conventions? I have not. Okay. It's just a two day party. And people were having fun, and they do karaoke night, and Jared and Jensen will probably be there at some point, you know, uh, if not for photo ops, then for sure for like, a, maybe they'll show up for just to say hi. You know, right. Like so it's generally designed just to be a, like any convention, just a good two, three days of, of fandom. And one of the weirdest things I have ever had anyone tell me was, I didn't know that that was you, because I just can't imagine you smiling or laughing or dancing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I, let's see. That means that they probably want supernatural. Okay, Alpha Vamp. He doesn't really smile a lot. Maybe a little bit. He doesn't really dance. Okay, you know, like they had this idea of me. That's sort of that disconnect between the character and me. Just to wind down here, Rick. I like to ask everybody this because you never know what someone's going to say. But do you have an experience right. that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Wow, man, you had some really good questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Like, seriously. No, dude, seriously. I have done, you know, like like many of us, you know, that, you know, Stephen Williams and I'm still, like the people that you have already interviewed I, that I saw on your email. Like a lot of us have done a lot of interviews, be it by email or Zoom or, or yeah. live. Uh, that's a great question. And not many people, I don't think, has anyone ever asked me that? I think maybe one or two people have ever asked me that over 30 years. So uh, I think, first of all, thank you. <laughs> Whew, man. Okay. Yes, I have. Probably, I think the first thing that I think about is many, many, many years ago, I was about 10 years old. We were driving, we were doing like a family road trip, you know, this, one of those classic American family road trips. You drive from, you know, from Detroit to St. Louis or whatever. You know, you know. We, I think we were driving back from Philadelphia. It's 1976, I believe. And I had this really weird feeling, man, like something was going to happen. And then I kept getting a little buzz in my belly, you know, like right down there. And I was like, I, I was scared. I just remember I was terrified. Like I was like, something's about to happen. I don't know what's about to happen, but something. And then sure enough, dude, my dad, he slumped my, who's fucking, my dad is like, you know, it's for all intents and purposes. My dad is like John Wayne, like nothing shakes him, you know? And he slows down the, and he's looking up out of the car shield window like this. And we're all looking up in the, in the sky. And I, I remember saying, mom, is that the, is that a star? And my mom said, yeah, I think it's maybe the North star. But then it started moving like this, you know, like very slowly. And my dad was like, what the heck? I'll never forget this dude. He says, what is that goddamn thing? And he, I think he, I think he rolled down the window, made no sound whatsoever, whatever this thing was. And dude, I kid you not, it shot up in the sky just like this, gone. So we saw something. I've had similar experiences seeing stuff in the sky, you know. That's yeah, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. And obviously it stuck and with you. It stuck with me, yeah. It was unidentified. It was flying. Everybody saw it. <laughs> Everybody saw it. But, you know, it's one of those things where I don't know what it's like. Right. All I can tell you is that it frightened me. You know, there's thousands, there's now thousands of people who have, you know, like yourself, you know, right. like they, 
at that time it was kind of like like yeah, it's taboo, real taboo, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you know it's like it's more like man, I saw something like I can't quite explain. It's one of those things. Well, Rick, just to wrap up here, put a bow on everything. Is there anything on the horizon that you can share for you without getting into trouble? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can. This has been a great interview, by the way. I just want to tell you, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Dustin, it's, it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking with you. So thank you so much. To break away from the genre that I love the most, which is fantasy and sci-fi, my newest job is I play a dad on the TV show Gossip Girl, which is airing as of last week on HBO Max, season two of Gossip Girl. I play the dad to a very spoiled, very rich, very bratty, very... And that, all the kids on that show, oh man. You know, like they're a bunch of rich brats, spoiled and... You know, you're just like, these are some really disgusting people, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it's like, it's, it's, but that's sort of the world that they live in, you know, right. it's like they, everyone's beneath them, so to speak, you know, and um, I play the parent to this child, a, a young, beautiful young uh, actress, the character's name is Mo- Monet. Mm. Monet Dehan, and I play her dad, Grayson Dehan. You can see it now on HBO Max uh, now. So I hope it's being received well. I don't know, but no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a vampire or a magician or you know a freedom fighter in an alternate universe. It's, it's just I'm. I'm just a guy who is well is rich and he has to deal with his you know take care of his his kid. So me and the wife. So <laughs> that in Washington Black will be coming out on Hulu. Um, they're editing it actually now. They're in the editing booth. Like, li- like I'm sure you're like literally right now. They're editing it all together. Uh, so Watched in Black, the nine-hour miniseries on Hulu, and I was told May of, of 2023. Awesome. Well, Rick, I said that's all I got for you. I thank you again for being so understanding and get, taking your time to chat with me. Dude, it's been a pleasure, man, and I wish you guys a very healthy recovery and a quick quick recovery and, and uh, wishing you all the best holiday season, man. I love this time of year. I just wish it would snow a little bit up here. It would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm in the south. If it snows down here, we freak out. <laughs> You're like, what's going on? I'm like, I grew up like shoveling snow out of the driveway, so it's kind of like what it's in my blood. You know, like I know the snow, yeah. but like, like what you know, being in LA for so many years, people are like, like, dude, that must be so weird growing up with snow. I'm like, that's what I know. You know so. <laughs> yeah, if we get a few snowflakes in the sky, we shut the school down. You know, we right, gotta- right. <laughs> we're gonna go to DefCon Four. Yeah. The snow is. Oh, you know. <laughs> Rick, it's been a pleasure, man. Sounds good, man. Thanks again, and uh, take care, dude. And um, thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. All right, folks. That's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Rick. As always, thanks for listening. Send us those reviews, and we'll see you next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? 
The sacred Night Demon Crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.